podcast is powered by Pella Windows and Doors and by Shoot360 Lincoln. Check out the showrooms for Pella in Omaha and Lincoln or online at PellaOmaha.com. And make sure you check out Shoot360 Lincoln. It is a national franchise that is taking the basketball skill development world by storm. I am the owner along with my brother. We are truly the world's most advanced basketball training facility. We use NBA-level technology inside our facility that tracks every single ball handling, passing, and shooting rep you take. From fourth-grade rookies to high-level college and pros, Shoot360 can unlock your game. Become a member by scheduling your free one-hour workout at Shoot360.com backslash Lincoln. Fill out that uh, free workout form, and uh, you will become a member and join what is something that I am really, really proud of uh, at Shoot360 Lincoln. Okay, I am taping this. It is Thursday, January 18th. I'm in my hotel in Cincinnati, Ohio. I was in Chicago last night calling Providence at DePaul. I flew to Cincinnati today. I got Georgetown and Xavier on Friday night, and I got a mailbag pod dialed up for you. Got some good questions. But before we get into that, I want to real quick give some some just my quick thoughts on Creighton and Nebraska's tough losses on Wednesday night at Rutgers and at UConn. So Creighton, you know, they got hammered by UConn. 62-48 to 48 was the final score. The score ended up uh, cl- like that. that's closer than it actually was. That's maybe not the most indicative final score. Uh, Creighton had to rally late just to, to make it interesting. Uh, then Nebraska lost a crazy game, 87-82 at Rutgers in overtime. Very similar games in that both Creighton and Nebraska – both of them got punked on the offensive glass and both looked outclassed athletically, uh, in my opinion. But let's start with with Creighton because that game at times, honestly, I don't mean to be mean, but that game at times looked like varsity versus JV and the JV couldn't enter offense and at times couldn't get a clean shot off. Creighton scored 48 points, 48 points, and they went long offensive droughts without making a field goal and... You know, listen, all of Creighton's issues were on full display last night at UConn. The lack of athleticism, playmaking in the backcourt, they they don't have very many guys that can win one-on-one, and the reality is that the blueprint is is kind of out on how to defend Creighton. This is all stuff we've talked about all year. Uh, Teams... Right now against Creighton, uh, they get super physical. They pressure the ball. They switch one through four. They run Creighton off the three-point line, make them a driving team, and make them a two-point shooting team and make any sort of post entries into Kalkbrenner really, really hard. And, you know, that's basically what Colorado State did, what UNLV did, and then what what Villanova and Marquette did as well. And that game looked eerily similar to the Colorado State and UNLV losses where Creighton turned it over a bunch. They got pressed out. They... They shot it poorly. They couldn't score the ball. And, you know, the other thing that happens when teams are pressuring and switching and heating the ball up is Kalkbrenner becomes non-existent. I think he only had, I thought I saw a note, maybe Matt DeMarinas had this up on Twitter. Kalkbrenner only had six post-ups against UConn. I mean, just was hardly involved in that game, which was similar to the Colorado State loss and Marquette loss. And Creighton just couldn't get him the ball. And it's just unfortunate that a few of Creighton's losses have just been, you know, non-competitive blowouts that UNLV and Colorado State. I mean, if someone – I was thinking about this. If you – imagine if you 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 hadn't watched any college basketball. You knew about you, – you know, you understood hoops and you, you, you know college basketball, but for some reason you've been living under a rock, haven't watched any college basketball. Imagine if someone gave you the film for 
Creighton against Colorado State, UNLV, and UConn and said, you know, this is a top 25 team that's a projected four or five seed in the NCAA tournament. You'd be like, what? <laughs> Seriously? I mean, it's just, it's it's interesting. When it's gone poorly for Creighton, it's gone really, really bad. Like, when it's gone south, it's gone way south. Now, to be fair, UConn's the number one team in the country. That's a well-coached, physical team that had a great plan and executed it fantastic. Like, the, I, I thought... For the most part, UConn was about as flawless as you could imagine on the defensive end of the floor. Uh, you know what? Speaking of defense, I actually thought Creighton was good enough defensively in that game. They held UConn to 62 points on the road, 35% from the field. That's good enough to win. Creighton was just inept, beyond inept offensively. They got physically manhandled on the perimeter, turned it over 14 times, gave up 21 offensive rebounds. So, you know, I don't know, man. It's weird. I, I'm surprised, but not surprised at the same time because I've kind of been a broken record on, on this team. Like, they're still a really good team. Everybody, like I've said, breathe a little bit with everything. Take a deep breath. But this team's got major flaws. You know, they, I don't think they're a top 10 team. I think they're a top 25 team, but they're not a top 10 team. And that's, you know, and they just got it handed to them by the number one team in the country, on the road, and they're the reigning national champs. So disappointing, obviously, but I, I expected Creighton to lose that game. They got to turn the page quickly to uh, Seton Hall. They got a chance now to knock off arguably the hottest team in the Big East. Uh, so real quick to kind of wrap up Creighton before I get to to Nebraska. I, I think Baylor Shireman is Creighton's best player. I, I think he's Creighton's all-around best player. But what's interesting is Creighton goes as Trey Alexander goes. Because there's a definite trend in Creighton's losses, and that is when Trey Alexander struggles, Creighton struggles. You look at, at, at his offensive output in the losses. Colorado State, he was 1 for 16 from the field. UNLV, 2 for 13. At UConn, he was 3 for 12. Then the Marquette and Villanova losses, he was combined 13 of 30 from the field. So in total, in Creighton's losses, Trey Alexander's averaging 10 points per game and is shooting 26% from the field. He's 19 of 71 from the floor. So pretty clear correlation there as as Creighton goes as Trey Alexander goes. Okay, just switch to Nebraska. Man, that game was wild. Uh, I quickly got back to my hotel and and downloaded both games, but I stayed up late watching the Nebraska game because I'd watched the first half of the the Creighton game and then I had to go get ready to do my my Providence DePaul game. But I, I stayed up till like one o'clock in the morning watching the tape of the Nebraska Rutgers game. The atmosphere seemed like it was crazy. Nebraska ends up losing eighty seven eighty two in overtime at Rutgers. Um, you know, Nebraska was up twelve with eight minutes left, about eight and a half minutes left, and proceeded to just go on a, a Sahara Desert level drought. Went nine, a nine minute stretch without making a field goal, so the offense went into the tank for Nebraska. But to me, this game was about the offensive glass. Rutgers had twenty five offensive rebounds, twenty five. Cliff Omaruri dominated the game, and I thought the same thing in the in the in the Creighton game. Uh, but I thought Rutgers just looked way more athletic than Nebraska. And I thought Rutgers played harder, too. All the 50-50 balls, the the hustle plays, the Rutgers seemingly won all of them. Now, Jawan Gary getting hurt 
Uh, boy, that didn't look good, by the way. Looked like it was in Achilles as I'm taping this. Haven't gotten any official word on it, but uh, Gary getting hurt really impacted the game because that, given the matchup and everything, they, Nebraska really needed Juwan Gary's toughness and kind of versatility in that game um, because Nebraska got punked on the glass and outworked. Uh, you know, it's hard because I do feel like I'm a broken record on my pods when I talk about Creighton and Nebraska basketball. I've said this once, I'll say it a million times. Nebraska's margin for error is slim, man. They, they need to be the hardest playing team. And last night they weren't. And they lost a game that that hurts, right? I mean, Rutgers is struggling this year the, towards the bottom of the Big Ten. And it's just really, really unfortunate. All the, the momentum from the Purdue win feels gone now. Completely. I mean, just shoot, that was like eight or nine days ago. Nebraska upset the number one team in the country, rushed the floor, played incredible, and here they are a little over a week later, and it feels like all that, all the good vibes, all the positive mojo, all this is just gone. Got blown out at Iowa and then lose a toughness gut punch game at Rutgers. Uh, you know, you watch Nebraska, there are times they just feel like they're a guard short to me, like they're they're just one playmaking wing short to me like that can just go win one-on-one like Taran Petaway or James Palmer type guy you know because you look at Bryce Williams is a little bit more methodical not necessarily going to just you know quick twitch get by you I mean Tominaga just everything he does is a degree of difficulty 10 out of 10 um you know and then Lawrence really struggled Sam Hoiberg is just limited offensively CJ Wilcher is a little limited offensively um he's certainly not going to go break you down off the dribble so just sometimes it feels like they're a guard short. But the, real, the reality with Nebraska is this. I think they're a bubble team that's going to have some stressful games and some stressful times over the next month and a half, two months. We've talked, we talked about this, but Nebraska's non-conference strength of schedule hurt, hurts them. And right now, Nebraska's inability to win on the road outside of that K-State game is, is concerning. And Nebraska's defense on the road is concerning. 52 points in the second half given up to Minnesota on the road, give up 87 at Rutgers. Wisconsin scored 88 points on Nebraska. Iowa scored 90-plus on Nebraska. They're just – they aren't giving themselves a chance giving up that kind of output defensively. I mean, good luck. You go on the road and you're going to give up 90 every night. I mean, you're just not going to win very much. So we'll see how Nebraska responds – here, I mean, Nebraska handled their adversity, initial adversity, really well this this season. They that had the Creighton blowout at home, and then the Minnesota loss. They rebounded, beating Michigan State and winning at Kansas State. And clearly, Nebraska didn't handle success very well with that win over Purdue. Nebraska is a team that isn't accustomed to getting pats on the back. To beat Purdue and then turn around and have those two performances is kind of perplexing and disheartening because it's weird, like. For some teams, they, they, they taste a little success and they relax. And then for some teams and some players, they taste a little success and they want more, right? They, like, lock in even more. They're like, ooh, I like that. And it feels like Nebraska relaxed, which is just surprising. So adversity has struck again now. Back-to-back losses against, you know, some of the teams that are towards the bottom of the Big Ten. Then Nebraska needs to respond. Northwestern comes to town. Um, this weekend, they're a team that Nebraska has had problems with. They're dangerous. Boo Boo, he's a great guard. They're a capable uh, team from from the three point line. Uh, so this is a huge game this weekend 
for Nebraska. But all in all, obviously, not a very good night for the Blue Jays and the Huskers. Both got punked on the glass. Both looked like they got outclassed athletically. Uh, so rough night for Creighton and Nebraska. One more thing that's just interesting to me. Right now, it's Nebraska's defense that is failing them in their losses, which is a little surprising considering the identity of the team on paper and the identity that uh, of the team that finished the season last year pretty strong. Like that was like a gritty defense team last year, right? Little surprising. And then for Creighton, oddly enough, their defense is elite again and even better. I mean, Creighton's up to sixth in Ken Palm's defensive efficiency ranking. Sixth. But it's Creighton's offense that is failing them in their losses, which is a little surprising considering it's Creighton. It's Greg McDermott, right? And there's shooting all over this, this roster. I mean, Creighton scored 48 points, got held to 48 points twice this season. There's been some there have been some stretches in this game where you kind of go, I don't know how they're gonna score right now. Just just kind of interesting. Interesting. All right, let's get to the mailbag. Uh really appreciate all the uh all, all the questions on Twitter, on Facebook, and and then the email, Nick at nickbod.com. Let's start on Twitter. Uh Leavenworth Street at Leavenworth Street, uh Asks, is Creighton lacking a true point guard? Yeah, maybe a little bit. I mean, Trey's more of a combo guard. Steven Ashworth is, is, I don't know, in some ways more of a shooter and a two guard than a true, pure, run the team, set the table type of, of point guard. So I think you could definitely say, yeah, they're, they're missing a pure point guard to a certain degree. But then obviously, I think where that shows up is, is handling pressure, ball screen efficiency, consistently getting into the paint and to the rim. Yeah, I just think more than anything, they're they're missing a super quick twist athletic guard that that can get downhill, get into the lane, and and make things happen. Mister Froming on Twitter says, "Can we get a midseason comparison of Nemhard twenty twenty two versus Ashworth twenty twenty three? Okay, so I, I did this real quick. I didn't know how to like really frame that. I mean, I did a quick uh, glance at the game log on ESPN. So what I think now officially eighteen games into the season." So just looking at the two at the two guys. 18 games into the season, Nemhard last year, Ashworth this year. Double figure games. Nemhard has had had 10 through the first 18 games, Stephen Ashworth 8. Games with 20 plus points. Nemhard had 2, Ashworth has had 0. Assists. Nemhard has had 97, Stephen Ashworth has 61. Games with three or more made threes. Nemhard has had 3, Stephen Ashworth had 4. So I don't know. I mean, kind of a pretty dramatic difference in assists, uh, 97 to, to 61 in favor of Nemhard. And the thing that's, that has just been surprising, obviously, is just the fact that Ashworth hasn't shot it better. Like, they're, they're very different players. I said, you know, I remember framing this when Ashworth committed. Like, you're, you're going to give up some of the, the playmaking from an assist standpoint and, and ability to get into the lane. And you're going to give up some of that for more three-point shooting. And while you are, have Ashworth has made more threes, he hasn't been the, the type of shooter that, that you thought he would be coming in. So I think Ashworth has actually played a little better of late, but he's got to start shooting the ball better. There's no question about that. And listen, we've been over the whole Ashworth Nemhard thing enough. Um, you know, there I think there are there are times this team really misses Ryan Nemhard. Um, I don't think there's any question about that. Adam MT eighty six says, Nick, what comes first, a Huskers college football playoff appearance or a Huskers men's NCAA tournament win? 
I will say a Huskers men NCAA tournament win. I mean, hell, that could happen this year. Now, I will say the the hard part with answering that question is the fact that the playoff is expanding to twelve. So, I mean, obviously that makes it it easier, significantly easier to to get into the playoff. Right, a four team playoff is just really really hard. Um, you know, Nebraska is going to have to win the Big Ten to get into the four team playoff, which is an, a really daunting task. And even then, like. It's no guaranteeing that they would have gotten selected. There was a world where Nebraska could have won the Big Ten and not gotten into the 14 playoff. So now it just seems like, obviously, making a 12-team playoff is easier than a 14 playoff. So it's, I guess I say that to say it's kind of hard to size up what the, the new landscape will look like. Um, but I'll still stick with you know Nebraska basketball men's NCAA tournament win. I mean, uh, look, look at it like this. Nebraska basketball likely needs to finish in the, what, top five, six, or seven at least in the Big Ten to get into the NCAA tournament, and then you're just a 40-minute game away from from winning it, you know, winning a tournament game. Whereas with football, you got to finish in the top two of the Big Ten, and you'll likely only have one or maybe two losses on the season. So, I mean, just framing it, it's it's a lot more challenging. So I, I, I think hoops. I, I think hoops. Brian says, favorite comedian slash comedic actors. Man, there's a ton. I, for some reason, when, when I read this question, I first thought about the ones that I kind of like shaped me growing up and really influenced me growing up. To me, those were Jim Carrey, any like Ace Ventura, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, like those three movies. Like I've just I've never been more blown away with it with a comedic actor. And then what he what he did on The Living Color too. Like I've just yeah I've I, I've. I'm still like Jim Carrey's got talent that is just from another galaxy. Uh, Will Smith as the Fresh Prince, like that, it's like a top five show of all time to me. I think that just yeah, he he was hysterical on that show. Will Ferrell as well, um, growing up on SNL, and then some of the movies in college, obviously old school, Anchorman, all those things, and then you know uh, Chappelle, Seinfeld, Kevin Hart, uh, Cedric the Entertainers, his act in the original Kings of Comedy is like the best thirty minutes, like. That's like pound for pound, like the best 20 to 30 minutes of stand-up I've ever seen in my life. I, I like Jim Gaffigan. Uh, with Kevin Hart, I always tell people this. One of, one of the most amazing things is that my wife and I, we were, we were dating at the time. We weren't married yet. We, we saw Kevin Hart at the Funny Bone in Omaha, right there at Village Point. In like 2010, like before he really blew up and became like Kevin Hart. Anybody that's been to the Funny Bone knows it's kind of a small, intimate venue. We were like front row. Kevin Hart was like five feet from me, and just I was screaming. It was it was just amazing. Uh, Mike Myers, Austin Powers, Wayne's World. Uh, certainly, I mean Austin Powers is top five comedy of all time to me. Uh, and then certainly Chris Farley, Adam Sandler, and their run in the 90s was amazing. You got to probably throw Steve Carell in there because of The Office. But th- those are, I mean, I just named like every comedian ever. But there's a, there's so many good ones. Spencer asked, Nick, what hotel uh, that you stayed in both as a player and a broadcaster has the best amenities? On the flip side, worst hotel you stayed at as a player and a broadcaster? You know, I don't really remember anything as a player being that noteworthy. Um, I do remember staying in a, in a hotel at Oklahoma and I think uh, some Oklahoma students pulled the fire alarm and we had to like v- evacuate the hotel at like three o'clock in the morning. That was the fun in Norman, Oklahoma in the middle of, of winter. Uh, but favorite hotel probably as a broadcaster is probably the Conrad in, in Indianapolis, right in the heart of downtown Indy. It's a great restaurant in the lobby. Uh, 
There's coffee close by. My favorite be- breakfast place in the world is right down the street, Cafe Patichu. If you're ever in Indianapolis, there's a couple locations. Go check it out. It's amazing. And then the hotel is, is near a bunch. I love steak. Steak's my favorite food. I mean, it, it, there's a bunch of great steakhouses. St. Elmo's, Ruth Chris, Capitol Grill, like just an amazing. So it's just more about like the food. And, then, and the hotel is really nice too, but it's the food's great all around it. Worst hotel I stayed at? I mean, there's a couple. Of, I I did a game for CBS Sports Network about five years ago. It was a Holiday Inn in, in Carbondale, Illinois. And it there was a party. There was just a, a raging party next door. And there was so much weed getting smoked. It was crazy how the the aroma was out of control. I fight, like I tried to fight through it, fight through it, like the noise and all that stuff. It was like a noon tip, and finally at like two thirty in the morning, I had to be that guy. I didn't, I didn't go next door, but I called down to the front desk, and I had to be that like, uh, excuse me, uh, there is a lot of noise going on on sixth floor. Can you come? Bring? And I had to like break up a party. I felt like a huge party pooper. But your boy had to be on TV the next day. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I had a, I had a mouse crawl across my floor at a Hilton in, in Charlotte. And I was on like the thirteenth floor, fourteenth floor. It's kind of, yeah. I definitely got a new room after that. Uh, the other crazy hotel story I have recently was, uh, th- this was just a couple of weeks ago, December 22nd, I did Kansas, Yale at Kansas, and I'm driving home after the game, and there was a crazy amount of fog. Not fog, like fog, Allen, but fog, fog. on uh, Like fog hit I-29, and it was the single most terrifying driving experience in my life. I was going... 15 miles per hour on I-29. I could barely see over the hood of my car. I had to pull over at a Super 8 in Rockport, Missouri and spend the night at a Super 8. I thought I was like, I, as I was checking, I was like, so you guys going to murder me now? Or is that like in the morning when I get murdered? How does, how does the murder work here at the Super 8 in Rockport, Missouri? But man, I've never, I've never driven in fog like that. That was insane. So, yeah, there's just thought of that hotel situation. The Hamburglar 77 asks, Nick, am I crazy to think Fred should run Kase Tomanaga at the point? Lawrence hasn't really developed, and I think he could relish the opportunity to get some more size on the court. Uh, yeah, Hamburglar 77, I'd say you are a little crazy. I mean, Kase Tomanaga isn't a good enough ball handler. I mean, he's like a 2-3 dribble max guy. And then, you know, the reality is you eliminate a huge part of, of Nebraska's offense, which is Tomanaga running off screens without the ball. Now, I will agree with you on the lack of development of Lawrence, and I've talked about this heading into the season and during the season, that point guard spot and it, it being a big concern and that L- Jamarcus Lawrence just, you know, I mean, you start ranking Big Ten point guards, you know, Lawrence is right now probably towards the bottom. And so, you know, I've, again, I said it a little bit ago, it just feels like Nebraska at times is like a good guard short of, of really, really uh, being a, a special, special team this year. Uh, but you know, they still got a, a shot to make some noise. There's no question about that. Dan Silva asks Nick, uh, rank slash rate the NBA draft prospects over the next few years of the following Trey Alexander, Ryan Kalkbrenner, Baylor Shireman, Casey Tominaga, and Tucker DeVries. Ooh, I love me some Tucker, some Tucker DeVries. So I would, you know, even though I said Baylor Shireman's Creighton's best player, I still think Trey Alexander is the best NBA draft prospect of, of that group. So I'd go Trey Alexander one. Uh, still just don't know if he's quite there athletically. Uh, Baylor Shireman, I would put it two. Um, you know, he just, he's one of those guys, like, 
I think if you gave him a shot on an NBA roster, he just would like find a way. Now he's not very he's he's not super athletic either. And if you're looking for a guy to just kind of like stand in the corner and shoot threes, and I think there are other guys that are going to be a little bit better suited than Shireman. He's he's more of like an all around player than just like a catch and shoot guy in the corner. But I, I'd put Shireman two. I'd put Tucker DeVries at three. I think Tucker's a very similar player to to Baylor Shireman. He's maybe a little bit better shooter, but they're similar size, similar versatility. I mean, Tucker reminds me of Doug at times in, in some ways. A little more perimeter oriented, but Tucker DeVries can play, man, at, at Drake. Uh, then I put Ryan Kalkbrenner and then 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 Tominaga at fifth. I mean, Tominaga's just probably he's not tall enough, uh, athletic enough, big enough to to make it. And you know, Kalkbrenner, you know, unfortunately, there's just you know five men. He's kind of like a I don't know a poor man's Rudy Gobert or a non three point shooting Brook Lopez kind of a guy. You know, he could maybe stick, but it's just it's hard. Those five men are hard to project at at the next level. Hard, hard, hard to project into the next level. Um, Polly Sports says, Nick, building a rap hip-hop playlist for the gym. Give me uh, Nick's top five run-through-a-wall motivational bangers. Oh, my God. I mean, okay, I wrote down a couple. I first one I wrote down is Till I Collapse, Eminem and Nate Dog. I mean, that shit is just that, – that's that's a classic. Rough Riders Anthem, DMX. I mean, you could get Get At Me Dog, DMX. You could get, like – I mean, there's a bunch of, of – uh, of DMX you could throw on there. Grinding All My Life, Nipsey Hustle, great song. Notorious Thugs, Biggie and Bone Thugs. Uh, a Deep Cut, Speakers on Blast, The Game, Big Boy, E-40, one of my, like, like a, a song no one really knows about that I love. The Rock Wilder, Meth and Red, Meth and Man and Red Man I love. For the Love of Money, Bone and Easy E. I mean, I could go on and on, but we got other other questions to get to. Good luck, Poly Sports, getting your workout game right. Okay, let's go to some Facebook questions. Uh, Steve says, Nick, love your pods. Thank you, Steve. Is this day of, of NIL, is it even about school anymore? Well, I mean, no. It's it's clearly just about money. I mean, oftentimes the the choice of, of some of these these athletes is solely based on the highest dollar amount. And the reality is it's it's not like it's not really even NIL. It's pay for play. And you know, these freshmen or, or transfers coming in, outside of someone like Dylan Riola or Hunter Dickinson. They really have no profile or of notoriety that would garner a major name, image, likeness, market value, right? Like a lot, so it's just weird. Like NIL isn't really even NIL in in my opinion, and so, so no, NIL really isn't about school. Uh, Paul says, Nick, thoughts on you and Bo doing a la- a Last Dance style review of the Nebraska Day by Day two part documentary series. Love the pods and thanks for always bringing laughter and joy. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, that's a good call. Like, thanks for the compliment. Thanks for listening. That's a that's a good idea. I still I haven't seen. We had the the producer of the Day by Day doc uh, on on the pod, but I still haven't seen the 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 Day by Day documentaries. There there are two out. I, I need to watch it and Bo and I need to recap it. That's let me file that away. Someone it, right now, someone let me know the best way to to watch those documentaries. Someone tweet at me, email me, let me know the best way to 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 watch those. And then Bo and I need to recap. Uh Bob says, what do you think of Omaha making the tournament and Frankie Fiddler dropping 40 points in the opening round? I love it. Sign me up. I love their athletic director, Adrian Dow. He's a great dude. Frankie's a baller. He's got five games with 25 or more, and, and Omaha's on a little bit of a surge here, so I'm all about it. Douglas asks, Nick, why does Greg McDermott hold on to his timeouts? Uh, yeah, he does. He, Greg McDermott is a, is a guy that is he's not quick to pull the trigger on calling timeouts. He's a lot like Phil Jackson in that way. Phil, Phil Jackson was notorious for not calling timeouts during a run. He liked... I, he, 
I, I think he's just he likes to let his team play through it and try to figure it out. That's just how he is. I think he usually trusts his team to problem solve on the floor. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's he is a guy that is is slow to call timeouts. Martin says, Nick, will there be will there be anyone on the bench that Greg McDermott will trust enough to get more than a few moments of playing time down the stretch outside of Francisco Farabello? Well, Martin, honestly, I don't think so. I, I'm just just not sure if anyone really has played their way into more minutes yet. Um, now there is a little bit of maybe chicken or the egg thing. What comes first, like getting the minutes to earn more minutes, or do you got to like play well to get more minutes? I don't know. The reality is. I think it's maybe more about like not wanting to take certain guys off the court, right? You just you don't want to any moment the Trey Alexander or Kalkbrenner or Baylor Shireman's on the bench, you just go well. Let's get those guys back into the game. And Creighton, keep in mind, Creighton doesn't foul. They lead the nation fewest fouls per per game. So that that's there's two parts to that. Number one, they're rarely navigating foul trouble, and then the other thing with that is because they they don't foul, there can be long stretches of, you know, two, three, four minutes can go by without a whistle. So maybe you intend to get, you know, it's maybe the, let's say it's the 12-28 mark and you want to get Kalkbrenner a, a, a rest for the under-12 media timeout. So here comes Fred King. Well, maybe three, four minutes goes by and there's no whistle and all of a sudden, you know, you're at the you know nine-minute mark, the eight-minute mark, and you haven't gotten Kalk back in. So... It, I, I get it, man, and I'm I'm frustrated with it too. It's frustrating that Creighton Basel has no bench again for two seasons in a row now. Uh, you know, you watch some of these other teams. Like I'm I'm studying Xavier because I got him tomorrow. Uh, you know, Trey Green goes off at uh, at Providence. Desmond Claude has big games. Davion McKnight has big games. Uh, Quincy Oliveri has has big games. Like they they some of these teams just have like multiple guys that that all can can step up and hurt you and it just kind of feels like Creighton's just got you know just a handful of dudes and and off the bench they rarely are going to bring in anybody that that really is going to make some noise so I get it Mike asks Nick how often are you called a homer when you call a Creighton game on Fox uh, on the road you know it's funny the homer stuff doesn't really happen much anymore honestly the only time I get called a homer would be by Nebraska fans when I'm calling the Creighton Nebraska game which is, other than that, I don't really get it at all. And what's funny about the Nebraska fans calling me a homer is when Nebraska won at Creighton last year, I did that game on TV. I got basically nobody calling me a homer during that game because Nebraska was playing well and won. So I didn't hear anything, oh, you're a homer. Boy, Ball's a homer. But this year when Nebraska struggled, got blown out, and Creighton played well and won, so obviously I'm like, taking the game as it's coming to me and I'm complimenting Creighton, that's when the Homer stuff came out again, which is just, I don't know, it's kind of funny. I'll tell you, that stuff used to really bother me earlier on in my career. I think it's just kind of stupid and funny now. I mean, I'm, I mean I've been calling college basketball games on TV for Fox for 10 years now. I'm a national, at a national level. Like, I, I mean, you know, you can't do the job and, you know, be a Homer. Like, come on. Like, you think Billis is incapable of calling a Duke game? Or Jim Jackson can't call an Ohio State game? No. It's silly. Everyone's from somewhere. Everybody went to school somewhere. So sometimes, you know, uh, is a, a former player from somewhere when, they're, they're, like, there's just always going to be, like, every game you call, that analyst went to school somewhere. So it's all just kind of kind of silly, silly to me. Okay, let's go to some, some email questions. 
Uh, this is a good question. This is from Chris. It's a long email, so I'll try and hammer through it. But he says, Nick, hope you're doing well. Love the podcast. Here's my Creighton Hoops question. First, let me say, uh, let me say I trust Mac above all else. I don't think people appreciate the job he's done the last 10 years getting Creighton Hoops to the place it is. With that being said, what do you make of the off-season decision to bring in Jonathan Lawson, Brock Weiss, and Knox with three remaining open scholarships? With Kalkbrenner, Baylor Sharman, and Trey Alexander returning, I think there should have been more of an emphasis on getting one to two proven, experienced role players, someone like a TJ Bamba. As I watch this team, I can't help but think about how there was a missed opportunity this off-season to go all in on the window of our big three. Reminds me of the NBA at the trade deadline when you have some stars but are missing a couple of pieces and those teams go all in to win now, i.e. Celtics this offseason come to mind. I, I found it especially curious after how Greg McDermott mentioned how he'd really have to love high school players to take them out of high school with the transfer portal era in college hoops. And this question hopefully isn't a dig on Knox, Vice, and Lawson as they all could end up being nice college basketball players. But at the end of the day, they aren't helping Creighton win this season, which I believe will close a championship window for a short time, hopefully. Obviously, easier said than done, but I'm curious on your thoughts. I wonder if Mac's tendency to play starters massive minutes limits his ability to recruit bench slash role players. Would love to hear your thoughts. Love to pot. First of all, that's an amazing email because there's there, there's a lot in that that is spot on, and there's a lot in that that I've thought a lot about over the course of the last month and a half. Much like Chris did in his email, I'll do the same thing. Let me preface everything with I, I think the world of Greg McDermott. You know me. You've listened to me for a long time. I think he's an incredible coach. He's an incredible person. I truly think he's a top 10 coach in college basketball right now. I think he's top 10 coach in the country. Creighton is beyond lucky to have Greg McDermott. And one of the things that I've always been amazed with him about is his talent evaluation and roster construction has been tremendous. His ability to go from the Doug team to the Maurice Watson, Justin Patton team to the, you know, the Zegarowski Tyshawn team to the Ryan Hawkins, Alex O'Connor team to the, like the way he's been able to keep on reloading and retool the, the, the roster has been amazing. But I did think the staff, I don't know. I don't, this offs, I, I can't help but sometimes scratch my head at what all went down this past spring for bolstering up this roster. If you think about it. So, you go back to April 1st, Creighton had five scholarships to give in, in the spring. That five scholies available at that time to bring in some guys. They brought in Stephen Ashworth, Isaac Trout, Jonathan Lawson from Memphis, and then Sterling Knox and Brock Vice, two freshmen, one from Vegas, one from, from Memphis. Two are redshirting, Knox and Vice. One doesn't play at all in Jonathan Lawson from Memphis. And the two... Others, Trout and Ashworth, they've just been okay so far. Obviously, Ashworth's been better than Trout, but both those guys, not, not they haven't been superstars. So they really, with five scholarships to give, they really didn't bring in any true high-impact guys as it stands today. Maybe Ashworth will catch a heater and get it rolling, but so far he's, he's been solid, not great. And I agree. I thought I thought this was a window to really go try to bring in two to three high impact guys, bolster up that starting lineup, bolster up that bench, 
and be a legitimate top five team in the country. And it just didn't happen. Or hasn't happened yet this year. Now, to be fair, what what maybe was challenging for the coaches is the limbo they were in with Ryan Kalkbrenner and Trey Alexander going through the NBA draft process and maybe staying or, or maybe leaving. That, that makes it hard to recruit. Because most players in the portal that are high-impact guys that we're talking about, they want to know that they're going to be starting and that they're going to be playing at least 25, 30 minutes a game and be a featured player. And with the limbo of Alexander and and Kalkbrenner and all this stuff, it, it made it hard to know what that picture looked like. For example, I think Hunter Salas fits this a little bit. I think Hunter Salas hit the portal. He wanted to go start, run the show, be be the guy, be a featured scorer. Well, with Trey Alexander maybe returning, it's hard to commit to that, right? It's 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 hard for Hunter Salas to commit to that. It's hard for Creighton to commit to Hunter Salas. Because of Trey Alexander, you know, in, in limbo. So it isn't the easiest situation on, for the staff either. But I do think Chris hit on what I've thought a lot about over the last month and a half. Man, staff had five scholarships to use this spring and really only have one legit dude that plays. That's unfortunate. Because that that core, the big three, Kalk. Trey Alexander Shireman is good enough to really go swing for the fences. Good email from Chris there. Next email from Bill. Let me pull it up here. I lost it for a second. He said, Nick, any thoughts on how how is it the Jays shooters who have proven that they are great shooters can go so cold in a game? Assuming their footwork is good, getting into their shot, are they getting sped up? Also, does Max' philosophy of not fouling approach the fine line of at times not defending with some aggression? Uh, doesn't an opponent driving the lane early in the game need to be put on his ass once in a while to send a message? Love all your work, Bill. Go Jays. Some interesting stuff in there. First of all, to address the 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 hard fouls, you know, and putting someone on their ass. Anyway, it, anymore, it's hard to really have a Detroit Pistons bad boys Bill Lambeer kind of a foul. It just gets called a flagrant, right? For the most part, I like how Creighton plays defense without fouling. I love how they can test at the rim without, you know, hacking down. If I were a coach, I would try to teach the same thing. You don't get into foul trouble. You don't give teams points at the at the free throw line. I think it's so much harder than you think to score at the rim over someone who just jumps straight up, puts their hands to the sky, and stays vertical. So I like that. Now, I will say the the lack of wanting to foul does make it so Creighton very, very, is very non-disruptive defensively. In fact, turnover percentage defensively. Creighton ranks dead last in the country in turnover percentage, meaning percentage of, of possessions. Nobody turns over their opponent less than Creighton does. And a lot of that is because they're, you know, they're they're in position. They're just not going to get out of position and, and foul. As far as the three-point shooters, um th- there, there's no doubt that the high volume three-point shooters of Trey Alexander and, and Ashworth need to start shooting it much, much better. Ba- Baylor Shireman's numbers aren't great, but I felt like he's he's been okay this year. I mean he's had some games where he's hit, you know, five, six, seven threes or whatever it's been. But Trey Alexander and Ashworth got to step it up, man. I can't quite figure out Ashworth. Again, he made 111 threes last year at 43%. 
top 10 three-point shooter in the country. I mean, that that season is like Rocky Corver-level stuff. And yet this year, he's just been cold. And so he's got to get it going. And with Trey Alexander, the hard thing to figure out is, is he actually like... Is he actually more of like a 30% three-point shooter and not a 40% guy? Because keep in mind, he shot it poorly from three as a freshman. He then had an amazing rise as a shooter, as a sophomore. He shot at 40-plus percent for the season. He actually led the Big East in conference games and three-point percentage as a sophomore. But right now, he's back to 30%. And this was my concern with him when he was a freshman in terms of projecting him long-term. Is like, is he a good enough three-point shooter? He was last year. He was a really good shooter. But so far this year, he is he's struggled. And I don't think there's there's anything mechanically uh with, with anybody's shots. They just gotta step up and make them, man. Period. Scott says, Nick, is there such a thing as a four game rule to preserve a red shirt in basketball? Uh in basketball, just like football? Does it vary from one level to another? Uh so there isn't a four-game redshirt rule in college basketball. Kind of wish there was some sort of rule that allowed you to play in a few games and maintain that redshirt ability, but unfortunately there's there's not. There's not one. Uh, Bruce Rasmussen, Creighton Athletic Director, says, uh, Nick, do fish sleep? Okay. <laughs> Maybe going, what? Did rest seriously about that? Yes. Okay, there's, that's like an inside joke. There's a story behind this. So... When when I was a, a junior and Nate Funk was a senior, Funk and I used to sit by each other on on plane on the plane and all that stuff. And Nate Funk and I sat behind Rass on a flight. Uh, I think it was a flight home after we won on the road or whatever. And and Funk and I are sitting there talking. And you know I'm an idiot. And I posed the the question to Funk of Do fish sleep? I was like yeah, do fish sleep? Like what is that? How do, how do that? How does that work? Which led to like a legitimate like thirty to forty five minute conversation about whether or not fish sleep. And I mean, Rass just finally turned around and couldn't believe it. And to this day, he still gives me crap about it. He always brings it up, so it doesn't surprise me that he he, he emailed in. I still don't really. I by the way, I don't. I mean, here I am. It's twenty twenty four. I don't think I really have the answer. Fish and sleeping. Like, do they just float and pass out for like eight hours and get like fish REM sleep and end up like God knows where? How does that work? How does that work? I don't. I don't. I don't know. Very confusing to me. Very confusing. Zach emails in and says, Nick, as excited as I am about Dylan Raiola, I can't help but be reluctant because quarterback play has been so bad lately. What is your confidence level in Raiola being a good quarterback for Nebraska, and what does being good look like? Having a tough time gauging expectations for him. Love the pod and hearing you on the call for college basketball. Keep up the good work. Zach. Thanks, Zach. Appreciate you supporting your boy. Um, good question. I mean, of course, we've been burned before with with great recruits not living up to to the hype. Um, for me, I do. I think the Dylan Raiola is a a, a different situation because I've I've talked about this. There's a difference between being the number one ranked quarterback and being maybe like the 18th or 49th ranked quarterback or whatever. Because number one is usually pretty obvious. When you get past like maybe top five or top ten, I'd imagine you you miss more. Most number one quarterback, five-star recruits, man, I, typically are pretty productive, and, and you can tell. Now, the reality is Adrian Martinez had a ton of talent, and I could argue that the reason he never got over the hump was because of what was around him, terrible special teams, obviously a, a culture that was a, a very shaky, um, 
not a great offensive line, not enough skilled guys around him. So I am pretty confident in Rayola's talent, but there has to be, you know, everything around him has got to be right too. I mean, I think, think back to some of the, the wide receiver situations and special team situations with, with Martinez. I mean, you could get you could have given Justin Fields Nebraska's wide receiver situation and, and their field position situation, and it's not like he probably would have lit the world on fire either. So your, your other two phases matter. Your other 10 guys on the field matter, right? And the thing you still got to see with Raiola that you just that you can't know right now until he proves it in a game is that it quality. That intangible thing that all great quarterbacks have. That poise, that intelligence, that calmness, that that you, that it thing. Because oftentimes it's the intangibles that actually separate the good from the great quarterbacks. I mean, think about it. Like, Brady, Tom Brady didn't just have a cannon. Certainly wasn't a freak athlete. But, man, he had everything intangibly. Same thing with a guy like Drew Brees. Small, not a huge arm, not a great athlete. But he had it. Does Dylan Raiola have it? I don't know yet. I know he has the talent. But we'll see on the it factor we'll see on the it factor so I totally get where Zach's coming from you just you know a little reluctant to totally totally buy in right now and get your hopes up I think he has the talent it's hard to miss on the number one guy got to get some help around him and it's just until we see that it quality the intangibles is tough to know Last question from Thomas. Says, Nick, hope you're staying warm. Two questions. We saw Doug's jersey get retired. Are there any other players you would put up in the rafters? If Kalkbrenner wins another Defensive Player of the Year or Player of the Year, is he next in the rafters? P.S. Need to book me at Shoot360 or my jumper is broke. Yes, you do, Thomas. You need to get to Shoot360 Lincoln, man. Go to Shoot360.com backslash Lincoln, Thomas. That's what you need to do. Interesting question on on Kalk. Maybe he'd maybe have the resume for a for a, a guy that would get considered to go into the Raptors. I mean, be, let, let's say he let's say he wins Defensive Player of the Year again for the Big East, three time Big East Defensive Player of the Year. Seems like he'd need a really good surge to win National Defensive Player of the Year. But who who knows? How, I mean, there's still a lot of basketball left. He he has the most NCAA tournament wins by a J already with six. He could add to it this year. Went to the Sweet 16 as a freshman, second round as a sophomore, Elite Eight as a junior. And if Creighton has another, you know, Sweet 16, Elite Eight, Final Four type run, maybe he is in the conversation. My gut says no. But I'll say this. I'm not really sure of the criteria and all that goes into a jersey getting hung in the rafters for Creighton. A couple of guys that I would that I thought about, maybe Rodney Buford or Ryan Sears are guys that 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 jump out at me. Maybe Funk or Anthony Tolliver. I don't. I don't know. But I to answer Thomas's question, I don't think there's an obvious one in my opinion. All right, we'll end it there. Good stuff. Appreciate all the questions. I need to do this more often. You guys are awesome. I love doing this. Uh, my thanks to Pella Windows and Doors. My thanks to Shoot Three Sixty Lincoln. Make sure you check us out. We're at Fortieth and Van Forty Eighth and Van Dorn. Just an incredible place. Uh, 
My thanks to Herdat producing the pod, and we'll catch you next time on the Nick Bob Podcast. A Herdat Sports Network production.